We Canadians are the beneficiaries of a long and proud tradition as international leaders. Whether as peacekeepers, goodwill ambassadors, counselors, or heads of global organizations. This reputation as leaders, diligently and conscientiously earned, has seldom been more relevant than during these challenging and financially uncertain times. Is it any wonder then, ladies and gentlemen, that the head of the Global Association for Investment Professionals, the organization that advocates for high standards of practice within the global investment industry, would be a Canadian? We are fortunate to have with us this afternoon the Chair of the Board of, the Governor, Board of Governors of CFA Institute, Ms. Mar Margaret Franklin, a Canadian, sorry, Ms. Margaret Franklin, a Canadian, began in the role last September, heading an 18-member board that includes investment professionals from China, Japan, Singapore, Switzerland, United Arab Emirates, United Kingdom, the United States, and of course, Canada. Ms. Franklin served in a number of capacities at the CFA Institute prior to her most recent role. She served as chair of its Audit and Risk Committee and also headed its External Relations, Volunteer Involvement and Planning Committees. She is a past president of the Toronto CFA Society and is a CFA charter holder. Last year alone, more than 111,000 candidates, that's a big number, from 160 countries and territories took a CFA exam an exacting and thorough test in the investment profession. On a personal note, many an acquaintance has turned down a dinner or other social invitation, choosing instead to study for their CFA exam. <laughs> I always thought it was just an excuse. But I'm reassured by having learned that Toronto has the second largest CFA society in the world, behind New York City. Given the unquestionable need for highly qualified investment professionals worldwide, it is reassuring to know that the CFA Institute is experiencing growth in its membership and the number of hopefuls sitting their exams. To her role as chair, Ms. Franklin brings 20 years of financial industry experience in investment management with both institutional and private clients. Based in Toronto, she is the president and CEO of Kinsale Private Wealth. She's also worked for global institutional organizations uh, uh, throughout that period. Uh, also of special interest, she was uh, very recently named one of Canada's uh, 100 Most Powerful Women. That, I think, deserves an applause. <laughs> Ms. Franklin is uh, sought, well sought after as a speaker. We're very lucky to have her here. Uh, and subject matter on investing behavioral finance and private wealth. I'm thrilled that Ms. Franklin has joined us today to talk about Canada's securities enforcement process and the steps investors, regulators, uh, government and industry participants should be taking to enhance investor protections. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Ms. Margaret Franklin to the Canadian Club podium. Thank you, Nick, for the kind uh, introduction. It's a pleasure to be here today and to have this opportunity to speak to the guests and members of the Canadian Club. Um, I will tell you, I saw the uh, flyer, a friend of mine, before I actually got it, um, sent me the advertisement for this particular event, and it was billed as thought provocative and get people talking. 
Uh, my father is actually in the audience, so when he hears thought provocative, get people talking, Marg, he, he gets actually quite panicked. So I am hoping uh, that today you, I will give you something to think about, I will give you something to talk about, and my father will leave here in one piece. As you know, the recent collapse of the global financial markets has underscored many of the flaws in the financial industry. So whether you are here today as an industry participant or as an individual investor, you have most likely felt the pain of these past few years in one way or another. It is an unparalleled time in our history, one that regulators, politicians, and investment professionals do not wish to repeat. And together, we must do everything in our power to protect investors in the future. We know that there are billions of dollars sitting in the sidelines in cash. And yet, despite the equity market performance of 2009 and 2010, people are still wary of putting that cash to work. And wouldn't you be? Not only did investors experience volatility, you know, the downside side that we didn't talk too much about before this crash, but they also learned of the fraud, egregious breaches of ethics, and a cavalier arrogance where it seemed that capital market participants forgot just whose money it was anyway. Let me be clear, this is not even close to a majority of the industry market participants, but rather a small, significant, and pervasive enough collection of individuals and firms that created a perspective for the average investor and perhaps even beyond the average investor of Wall Street and Bay Street, that they had been duped. Given this landscape today, the greatest challenge of the financial industry, therefore, is to rebuild trust among investors. So why is trust the desired outcome? From a self-interested perspective for the industry professionals in the audience, without trust, we don't have a business. We don't produce tangible goods where, if found defective, a client can return it in exchange for a new one. It is a business whose basic thread is that of trust, that we will do our very best for clients, that we are qualified to do the services we say we will provide, and that we will put our clients' interests first and ahead of our own. For investors in the audience, the opportunity and, play and playing field to earn a fair return is of the utmost importance because your financial independence and security now rests squarely on your shoulders. And while there have been no doubt days that stuffing the cash under the mattress probably seemed like a good idea, both inflation and longevity, that is, that you might outlast your investments, are surely two risks that come with doing nothing that in fact make doing nothing untenable. When I began in the business 20 years ago, institutional investors completely overwhelmed the investment pie. These were sophisticated investors who day whose day job it was to manage money. It was their livelihood. Over the last 20 years, there's been a virtual wholesale transfer of that pie from institutions to individuals, where in one form or another, the individual is now in control of the bulk of the assets. And while there has much been written and talked about on this, individuals have actually been handed this responsibility without the training except self-teaching. And so they are largely uh, dependent upon professional advice. 
As a result, I would argue that while white-collar cr white crime and investing are seen, or investing is seen as elitist, and white-collar crime is viewed as dramatically different than guns and gang-related crime, the integrity of and confidence in our financial system is critically important to the well-being of this country, and should be viewed as a should be as much of a priority as dealing with violence in our communities. So if we are to maintain the public's trust in our capital markets and the investment profession, then we in the industry must pay attention to three areas which I'd like to focus my comments on today. First is the adherence to high ethical standards. Second are issues of securities enforcement. And finally, a call for change. So if you remember anything from my time with you today, it would be two words, restore trust. Let's look at ethical standards first. As the chair of the Board of Governors of the CFA Institute, I've had the opportunity to travel around the world and learn from the experiences of global regulators, governments, and industry participants. Nick very deftly explained about the CFA Institute, our mission is to lead the investment profession globally by setting the highest standards in professional excellence, ethics, and education. We're a global community of about 105,000 members, of which about 95,000 are CFAs. And interestingly enough, it's not a very big number in contrast to the millions of capital market participants. But anywhere I go in the world, anywhere at all, people know what the CFA Institute is and who CFAs are. Through my experience as a board member, I propose to you this afternoon that education is the best tool that we have for inscribing the ethical, for inscribing ethical practices in the bedrock of free financial markets. An ethical framework encourages and promotes trusts so that market participants can feel confident and invest in those fair opportunities. The system must be based on trust between counterparties and trust that the prov information provided is accurate, timely, and relevant. The first line of defense that we have against these kinds of problems we have seen is a living system of professional ethics. What has happened in many Western economies over the past years is a sorry episode of misplaced incentives gone wild. The credit securitization bubble that burst in 2007 was not only the result of failures in supervision, at the heart, it was a series of ethical lapses on a systemic level. One of our best chances for minimizing ethical lapses in the future comes from the education of investment practitioners, particularly young professionals. The next generation of, the next generation of practitioners needs solid grounding in how to deal with the inevitable ethical dilemmas that they will face over their career. I say this because the complexities of professional ethics are to a great degree learned behaviors and habits. An employee faced with quarterly production quotas may not be able to differentiate between his personal interests and the interests of shareholders. A pension fund trustee may not inherently know how to respond to pressures from pension stakeholders to invest in local housing projects. A portfolio manager compensated for performance without accountability to the risk assumed may take outsized investment positions in the, return, in the pursuit of return without ever violating any written rule. These are simple examples of decisions whose answers are not necessarily black and white. 
These and other ethical decisions become particularly challenging when the misplaced incentive systems pull us in the wrong direction. Getting ethics right is more than simply adopting a code of conduct, although we would argue that commonly accepted codes of conduct and standards of practice set the bar and offer important signals to investors. There's a lot of room, though, for error and interpretation when professionals are confronted with challenging situations, especially when those situations involve large sums of money. On a bigger scale, these behaviors, entrenched behaviors, these actions can become entrenched behaviors inside firms and industries, especially because much of what happens in the ethical area occurs in the gray area between open, transparent disclosure and dishonest and sometimes criminal intent. Like the old truism, the chains of habit are too weak to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. Or as my grandmother would say, it's not what you say, it's what you do. For the CFA Institute, the single biggest effect on the financial crisis has been our role as a global advocate for professional ethics and standards. With the implementation of regulatory reform now seemingly at hand, regulatory communities regularly seek our advice and counsel, in large part because we're a nonpartisan, multi-constituent organization. Our membership includes portfolio managers, research analysts, CEOs and CIOs from independent investment managers, pension funds, banks, and other myriad capital market participants around the globe. So our diversity inherently necessitates clarity on what we speak for, not necessarily on who we speak for, and has magnified our reach and ability to positively affect the profession on behalf of our members. We're not naive. We recognize that solutions to the issues of the day are complex, and we believe that ethics and professional conduct must be part of the equation. So an interesting statistic, a 2009 study by the Joint Standing Committee on Retail Investor Issues found that 91% of Canadian investors consider their financial investment advisor to be among their top three sources for information guiding their investment decisions. This raises the question, how can we, as industry leaders and participants, best rise to this ethics and professional challenge? To start with, we need to take a hard look at what's working and what isn't working with the client-advisor relationship. Obviously, investors count on their advisors to look out for their interests. Investor protection is there, therefore a high priority for advisors. We feel it should be the highest priority. With this in mind, advisors must ensure they invest themselves continually in understanding new market dynamics, new market instruments, and how the changing environment affects their fiduciary responsibility to clients. There must be a commitment to professional excellence and standards that goes beyond lip service. It is no coincidence, then, that anyone wishing to earn the CFA designation must master our code of ethics and standards of professional conduct at all three exam levels. They also must sign an annual professional conduct agreement or forfeit their right to use the CFA designation. Because of this rigor, regulators in many countries increasingly require passing the CFA exams as a prerequisite to be licensed as a practitioner as an investment advisor. 
On the other side of the coin, investors need to do more to educate themselves about their investing decisions. With the shift in Canada's pension structure from defined benefit to defined contribution plans, millions of Canadians are now in charge of their fi own financial retirement. Now, more than ever, Canadian investors need to better understand the financial industry, read the reports they receive, and seek the services of highly qualified investors, advisors. So just as advisors are bound by the know your client rules, investors must also do whatever they can to know their advisor. In my own practice and in the shared observation of other private client advisors, I would remark that clients are enormously ripe for the conversation, including the difficult decisions and uh, construct around risk and return expectations. However, they are demanding that this conversation take place in a language that is both comprehensible and relevant to them, not in the lexicon of professionals. Still, even the most diligent investor can be caught off guard by a rogue advisor. And when this happens, enforcement must, it becomes essential. This takes us to the second area that I'd like to address. While investor education and ethical professional conduct are the, our best hope for investor protection. The threat of punishment for breaking rules or principle also deters a fair amount of unethical behavior on the part of advisors. The reality is, however, there will always be bad guys whose ethos are skewed in their own favor. And when practitioners do wrong, either by making bad choices and dealing with ethical dilemmas or surrendering to their worst impulses of human behavior, then speedy, just enforcement and penalties must result. As a native Canadian, it's only natural that my frame of reference for interactions with colleagues of different countries is my experience here in Canada. And sadly, when it comes to the issue of enforcement, the Canadian experience is exceptionally poor. The serious remediation and enhancement to enforcement efforts in many countries is reason for optimism. So I'd like to share with you an example that we all know well, and it, it's very illustrative. The Bernie Madoff example is not only an extraordinary one just for its scale, it's an interesting one in how the business works. As an industry practitioner uh, and CFA, uh, it's an extraordinary one. Um, an industry practitioner, Harry Markopoulos, and a CFA charter holder, I might ask, Ad, was asked to look at Madoff's returns eight years ago because they were competitors and they couldn't make sense of the return profile. In his analysis, uh, Harry, became, um, Harry indeed saw that the return profile was impossible. And so what ensued was a thorough and forensic-like investigation that culminated in three detailed written submissions to the SEC, each of which was ignored. Harry's greatest regret is that in 2004, he didn't find a way to grab the SEC's attention because billions were lost between 2004 and 2008 when Madoff was finally shut down. We all know how this one ended, though. The SEC did step up. Within two years, Bernie Madoff was tried and sentenced to 150 years in prison, and his family in this state faced decades of litigation. With our neighbors to the south, who do love a perp walk, their attorney generals, particularly in New York where Wall Street dominates, are keenly and confidently focused on retribution. Who'd have thunk Bay Street would be more familiar with Elliot Spitzer and Andrew Cuomo than the Ontario attorney general, if you even know his name? 
We are just not focused on it here. So when I return to Canada, it's hard not to be frustrated. The framework in our country is hardly preventative either. Consider the outcome for investors when these mistakes were not caught in time to prevent or lessen the loss. In 1997, when BRIEX collapsed, not only were individual investors invested in that stock, but the Quebec, pension, Quebec Public Sector Pension Plan lost $70 million. The Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, arguably one of the most sophisticated investors in the world, lost $100 million. And the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement Board lost $45 million. Second, as a direct result of the government ignoring red flags in 2001, over 33,000 Crocus investors lost over $60 million. In 2005, the Norberg scandal cost more than 9,000 investor, 9, investors millions of dollars, and approximately 26,000 clients were defrauded of $750 million of their savings when the Toronto hedge fund Portis Alternative Asset Management failed. And the list goes on and on. Cases such as these caused the industry as a whole to suffer as a result of a tainting of the pool and eroded investor confidence. You know, I continue to be shocked that industry participants aren't outraged and demanding stronger enforcement because this is about our business, which is about trust. Now, let's consider the uh, enforcement of or punishment for bad behaviour. A prime example of this is the case against the former managing director of RBC Dominion Securities, Andrew Rankin. After all the resources poured into this case over seven years, you have to wonder the result that the OSC decided not to retry the case against Rankin can be justified when the co-accused Daniel Duick admitted his wrongdoing while testifying to Rankin's, but neither went to jail. Indeed, Duick, in a deal cut with the OSC, got to keep a portion of his profits, and Andrew Rankin is now suing RBC for wrongful dismissal for $11 million. And while both have been banned from the securities industry in Canada, it does make one wonder whether the course of events in this case adequately sent the message that the misuse of confidential information will be treated seriously. So why can't Canada get the bad guys? I'd like to submit four significant reasons. Number one, there are too many players on the field. Securities regulation in Canada is currently in the hands of 13 provincial and territorial securities administrators and two SROs. The perception is that these securities administrators have a tendency to let white-collar crime go unpunished. Secondly, we don't have enough sufficiently qualified people with adequate industry experience to find, investigate and convict wrongdoers. Third, where there is clear responsibility for regulation, there is inadequate bite to the bark. And fourth, there is an insufficient ability to coordinate and collaborate in efforts to catch the bad guys. So what can Canada do to turn this situation around? First, we can adopt a single national regulator that will help streamline detection, investigation and disciplinary proceedings. I say this with the full understanding that making this kind of change involves delicate constitutional issues that require careful consideration that has and indeed is taking place before any structural changes can be made. However, a fragmented regulatory framework is an environment ripe for regulatory arbitrage. I would commend Finance Minister Flaherty for his determination in making this happen. 
Given the subtlety of its importance to the average Canadian in the context of everything else that's going on, the vehement opposition by a small but nonetheless influential group, and the small amount of political currency he and his party will win by doing this, it is one of the rare instances where the right thing appears to trump the politically expedient thing. The second, is the, inability, the second inability to get the bad guys is not having the right people in the right structure. So in 2003, the RCMP launched the Integrated Market Enforcement Teams, or IMET, which is comprised of 10 investigative units in four cities across Canada. IMET is described in its annual report to be a group of highly specialized investigators dedicated to ensuring that those who commit serious capital market fraud offenses will be discovered, investigated, prosecuted, and incarcerated in an effective and timely fashion. IMET has cost the Canadian taxpayers more than $100 million. And to March 31, 2009, when the most recent data is available, 26 individuals had been charged with 1,008 counts of capital market fraud offenses. And you know what the result over seven years has been? Five convictions at a cost of more than $100 million to Canadian taxpayers. Our second recommendation is that this agency needs to be revamped from top to bottom. When we look at enforcement investigators employed by provincial administrators, it's striking how many have limited experience with the industry or with many of its practices. For example, too many investigators employed by regulators here and nationally are former, even retired, law enforcement staff with negligible backgrounds in the securities industry. We think obtaining the Canadian Securities Corps should be a minimum requirement for this type of employment. Add to this the fact that there aren't enough securities lawyers with industry experience, particularly those with compliance backgrounds, working at the senior most levels of the provincial securities administrators. So it is just this notion that the CFA, in the interest of increasing regula regulator literacy global globally, has discount programs available that offer many of the benefits of the CFA program body of knowledge. We are currently operating this program with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, and we are pleased to announce today that we will offer a similar program to Canadian regulators across the country. Finally, we must increase penalties and ensure fines are collected. It's a fact that enforcement penalties frequently go uncollected. Fines and penalties are often ignored by industry professionals convicted of securities regulation offenses. And you may say, how does this happen? Well, the MFDA, the Mutual Fund Dealers Association, for example, collects only 38% of the penalties applied, while IROC is only successful 20% of the time. You know why? Because people simply leave the industry, or at least temporarily, to avoid paying the fines. And we're highly cognizant of this issue and shortfall at the CFA Institute because we too face the same issue, that when individuals facing disciplinary hearings or sanctions, including the revocation of the charter, often remove themselves from the CFA membership. However, we believe in the case of both self-regulatory organizations whose mandate is enforcement that they should be granted the statutory ability to collect fines. And of course, this would be much more easily facilitated with a national single regulator.
So of all those suggestions I've just outlined for you, sadly, not one of them is new. Five years ago, each of these very recommendations were eloquently and plainly articulated in the 2006 commissioned report, Task Force to Modernize Canada's Security Legislation, also known as the Allen Report. I would encourage anyone interested in this area to read the report. It's exceptionally well written, it's thoughtful, and it's sensible. The enforcement section contains 33 enforcement-specific recommendations. Of these, very few have been implemented or even are under serious consideration. I find this utterly disheartening. So, in the midst of this dreary picture, we would like to congratulate the OSC's new chair, Howard Weston, who's recently pledged to make enforcement a top priority during his term. We are strongly behind you. I can only hope that his counterparts in the rest of the country will follow suit. Our provincial securities administrators need to step up to the plate, acknowledge there's a problem, and start seeking solutions. Our investors deserve nothing less. So let's look at next steps. First, the CFA Institute will be calling for a federally commissioned task force to create awareness and the political will to resolve these issues. We're inviting others in the industry who share our interest in regaining investor trust and confidence by enhancing enforcement practices to join us in the push for this task force. Secondly, the CFA Institute, consistent with its mission of professional excellence through education and ethics training as of today, will make available to Canadian regulators across the country the same discount programs that offer the CFA program body of knowledge. For those professionals in the audience, we will be calling on you to help us restore trust. For individual investors in the audience, we will earn that trust back. So I'd like to end essentially where I began, that restoring trust after years of market integrity devastation is the greatest challenge facing leaders of the financial service industry, regulators, politicians, and investment practitioners. I recently had lunch with Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal. Jason writes frequently and is the author of a number of books on investing and the individual. And given our day jobs, uh, our conversation inevitably turned to the issue of trust in its myriad forms. And he brought to my attention an utterly fascinating piece of research done in the 60s about victims and functional responsibility. And it goes something like this. When something bad happens to someone, the victim will often rethink the events and start to assume some responsibility for that bad thing. Maybe I shouldn't have been walking out on that street so late at night. Maybe I shouldn't have been in a deserted area. And what that does is it helps us think, feel that the world operates under a social compact, that social order is reasonably intact. So we explored this analogy over lunch as it relates to our business. And if you think about investors in the tech bubble, they could comfort themselves that all was as it should be or largely because their brokers had told them not to put all their eggs in one basket, that commentators, some commentators were howling at the stratospheric valuations for companies that never earned a single nickel. So let's fast forward 10 years. The challenge is that people did diversify. They did what their advisors told them. They largely held on. And they've watched unparalleled lapses in ethics, fraudulent activity on an unheard of scale, and a host of other violations. If we don't act now, 
investors will begin to turn that notion of functional responsibility on its head and believe that good things happen to bad people and that bad things happen to good people. It is in our self-interest and our clients' best interest that we find the perspective and the fortitude to strengthen securities enforcement and restore trust, because if not now, when, and if not us, who? Our vision is that financial markets should be equitable, free, and efficient so that every investor has a chance to earn a fair return. I hope you will join me and my colleagues in stewarding this vision and protecting investors at home and around the world. Thank you very much for this opportunity and for your attention. Thank you very much, Margaret. I would like to call John Capobianco, immediate past president of the Canadian Club, to the podium. Thanks, Nick. Madam Chair, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for the insights and thought-provoking perspectives that you shared with us and with the audience today. Your dad should be very proud of you. <laughs> Investing in these times is certainly a topic of conversation that is garnering unprecedented attention and rightly so. The investment community and investors all over the world can rest assured that mistakes of the past have been lessons well learned and that the investment profession is on even stronger footing, thanks in part to your leadership and to your vision. While Canada escaped the financial crisis relatively unscathed, you rightly pointed out that we should not rest on our laurels, that there is much more to be done to ensure that our investment markets are strong and sound. As a nation, we certainly are mindful of the ongoing need to lead by example. You offered sage advice not only for investors, but to government and regulatory community who are in charge with enforcing and monitoring the policies and protocols that govern the markets. Ms. Franklin, you do Canadians proud by your leadership of the CFA Institute. We wish you every success as you continue to carry out your duties as chair, and we invite you to join us again. And again, we thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thank you, Margaret. And thank you once uh, more to the CFA Institute for making this event possible. This concludes our television programming, which has been broadcast live on Rogers TV. We are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. Thanks to all of you here for joining us. This meeting is now adjourned.